0: You're listening to art affairs episode number seven today i'll be talking to andrew hosner So my name's Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. If this is your first time listening, Art Affairs is meant to give you a look at and into the new contemporary art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, printmakers, shining a spotlight on the human side of the wonderful work they do. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes at artaffairspodcast.com, And you can check out new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, if you like what I'm doing here, be sure to subscribe. And you can always connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is co-founder of ThinkSpace, Andrew Hosner. I first met Andrew for the first time uh, four or five years ago when I was in town for a show at his gallery um, and have been following his, his gallery ever since and have since become friends with him. And one of the things that has always really impressed me about him is how he has always approached the community and the artists um, with a really strong sense of community and, and a collaborative spirit. Um, he, he really stands out as an example of somebody who... Um, has uplifted the people around him and helped them to succeed and continue to be successful himself. And I really admire that about him. So I was really eager to have him on the show to to talk about that. But then also his gallery, ThinkSpace, is uh, approaching its 15-year anniversary. In uh, about a week and a half from when we recorded this, uh, they have a 15-year anniversary show. So I was really eager to talk about that as well. So we talk about the origins of ThinkSpace how it has evolved over the years to adapt to the explosion of social media, uh, general advice to artists, and a whole lot more. I also want to take a moment to mention that the audio quality on Andrew's side isn't the best. Uh, There was a bit of a setup issue and I I didn't really realize it until after the fact. Uh, I was able to clean it up considerably in editing, uh, which is why this is coming out a bit later than I'd hoped but it's still not quite where I'd like it to be quality-wise. With that said, I think the content is solid and I didn't feel like it was really bad enough to take up any more of Andrew's time re-recording. I just mention it because I want you to know that I recognize it and it's something that I'm constantly striving to improve. Uh, Like I mentioned from the very start, this is all incredibly new to me and I'm constantly learning. So I appreciate your patience And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the show, dude. It's really great to have you on. Thanks, Michael. Uh, With ThinkSpace turning 15 this year, I'd like to start by revisiting a bit about how it all began. Um, but even before ThinkSpace and even before you really got heavily involved in our community, uh, you had like an entire career in the music industry, right?
1: Yeah, my wife and I were both heavily um, entrenched in the music industry for like well over a decade each when the uh, idea of the art gallery even came up. Um, if you would ask 25 year old me, are you going to have a gallery? I'd be like, huh? <laughs> um, so it's definitely, we started a little later um than a lot of folks do but with that said i think we went into it with a skill set and uh, a knowledge of marketing and how things kind of influence one another and how important collaboration can be
0: and you you were doing marketing for them out in philly right
1: yeah yeah my my wife was involved on more of the sales end of things and i was involved on more of the marketing end of thing but with that said she was heavily involved in marketing as well because she worked for a distributor that uh basically connected a lot of smaller labels and got them into the bigger stores and stuff like that. So they were a conduit.
0: So you, so you met her while you were out in Philly or was it after you moved to LA? Met
1: her through the job. Yeah. Okay. Cause she distributed our label that I worked for. So I would constantly see her when I came out to LA where she lived or when I came to New York for sales conferences where she and all the other reps would come into. So okay. eventually uh, it clicked one fine day when I took her over to uh, high times offices for a uh, visit took some of the reps there that I knew were uh, inclined to enjoy something like that. And uh, <laughs> it, it made a big impact.
0: <laughs> Very cool. Um, and even though you were in the music industry, like visual art was still a big component of your life, like for, for pretty much your entire life. Cause I, from what I understand, even as a kid, you took art lessons from a family friend, right?
1: Yeah. Um, my, uh, middle school art teacher, Bob Shane, uh, rest in peace. Um, he was super influential and in just like getting me uh, off my ass and just creating. Um, and my mom and my grandma's old house um, rest in peace um, are still filled with like my early drawings all framed up and stuff of Captain America and Paddington, the bear and everything else I used to emulate when I was a kid.
0: That's amazing. So, I mean, it, it seems like art's always been a passion of yours, even though you sort of took a detour through the music industry. Um, it's always been a part of your life.
1: No, 100%. Um, not to mention just being heavily involved with like working with West Ben Scoter and some of the artists that did a lot of the album covers um, for the bands that we worked with back at Relapse back in the day and then moving over to Century Media. Um, a gentleman that used to work with me there that actually handled the art for a lot of our albums is now um, our art guy and does all of our ads and all of our design and every bit of our uh, marketing credentials and stuff like that. And he's also an artist. Uh, acrylic painter Um, that we show every other year now for uh, a number of years and has been in our every group show pretty much since we started so um, it's been kind of awesome to watch him spread his wings because he had always wanted to be an artist and went the graphic designer route and then once we started doing the gallery and um, started talking about doing the gallery I should say I had asked him if he would help you know kind of brand it and create all the Design elements and stuff like that, and he kind of looked at me and was like, "Man, do you mind if I uh, put a piece in the first show?" He's like, "I kind of miss painting," and I didn't even know that about him. And had worked with him for you know a number of years, and uh, yeah, he's he's one of our you know more popular you know sought after artists. That's very you know, cool, uh, Anthony Clarkson. So oh yeah, awesome, a, amazing amazing artist.
0: I didn't realize he did all of your your branding stuff too. That's awesome. Yep. Um. So what ended up uh, getting you to move out to L.A.? You were in Philly for so long, and then then you moved to L.A
1: i um, coming out here uh, a couple weeks in summer 2001 after uh, Sean and I had uh, kind of clicked that summer in uh, in New York, you know, like late July, August, and we kept in touch. via long phone calls for about a month until where I finally said, you know, fuck it, I'm, I'm coming out there for a visit, and um, came out for like the first week of September 2001, and was supposed to fly back to LA the morning of September 11th. And woke up to take our car back to a message from the, uh, the car place, kind of going, I don't know if you need to bring your car back, everything's kind of going to shit, you should turn on your TV. <laughs> and uh, we turned on our TV and literally started watching it right before the second plane uh, went into the building and it was kind of a, a life-changing moment on a lot of fronts. Um, for sure, yeah. For a lot of people, not to mention myself, because that basically, you know, made me realize I wasn't flying back that day, stayed a little bit extra. Um, I think a night or two after that, I ran into one of the guys at Century Media, at a show that we went to, which was the, the competing metal label to relapse where I worked at the time. And they were like, Hey man, I've noticed you've been out here for a minute. What's going on? And, uh, I told them what was going on with my life. And they were like, well, you don't want to work remotely. Come over and work for us. And, um, went and had an interview with them the next day and decided, uh, pretty much on the spot to take it because it was a great offer and flew home like I don't know four or five days later and uh packed everything up and then Sean Sh- came out and we did a did a cross-country adventure back to uh my new home where I've been ever since
0: so it was a flight delay that ultimately led to your like the rest of your life
1: In know in, in a small part I mean yeah, I think it sped it up for sure
0: that's amazing um and was she as big into art as, as you were at the time
1: yeah probably even a little more so really yeah um she she had a lot more um ties and connects with the local artists and was already starting to collect a lot of prints and stuff like that. And I was more kind of the, the Moocha and Dolly guy all over my house back in Philly. But, um, when she had come over to visit the house, she was kind of surprised that, uh, a metalhead had framed art <laughs> all over the place, you know, and it wasn't like, uh, crazy ghoulish stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was cool.
0: That's awesome. And then after you lived in LA for a while, you got really heavily into the art scene there, right? Like you guys were going to shows like every weekend from what I understand.
1: Uh, it, like, yeah, more than probably a couple times a week. Um, but we were both looking for something that, you know, we could do and we were starting to go to flea markets and collect old radios. And then, um, we just started kind of going to Mary Karnowski and copro and some of the early torchbearers of the movement and, uh, black market gallery. Um, is the first um, place that we had bought our first original work together as a couple because um, she had had a few original like smaller works from you know local artists and stuff like that and i had a lot of prints but this was our first kind of collaborative like oh let's go down the rabbit hole of collecting and uh, we bought a little 300 hundred dollar jeff soto um oddly enough like i said from from black market back then which is now the gallery home house building that we occupy um all these years later so it's kind of a uh, quirky that we're in the same building that kind of i guess started the fire so to speak and then um we were buying really heavily and going to cannibal flower which is what led to think space um which was like a local monthly pop-up art rave um back then there was cannibal flower and create fixate which were two big outlets that provided artists that couldn't get into the gallery movement out here a chance to show and um, they would be like four to five hour affairs with a small admission with all sorts of crazy performance art tied in and then usually anywhere from 50 to 100 artists on the walls and you just could go and check out like really cutting edge amazing stuff that you just couldn't see at any of the galleries around town and back then it was re- it was a much smaller gallery scene for this movement than it is now here in LA um, or I should say than it was like maybe five years ago because it's kind of you know done its natural progression and now we're back to you know about four or five key galleries whereas five, six years ago there was twice that. but um, a lot of them didn't weather the the challenges that have uh, faced a lot of us over the last decade. But um, now it was a pretty pretty magical time, very different time. Um, we were going to so many art shows and I was, so, anal retentive, um, and I was constantly taking notes and just having like a little notepad of shows to go to. And our graphics designer at uh, Century Media, the label I worked at at the time, was like, "Dude, let me uh, let me make a simple little website for you to you know to share all this knowledge that you collect with other collectors out there because there's really no way to to gather it all because that was before. I mean, juxtapose was still a Geo Cities Geocities, Geocities um, website." it was like updated like once every quarter um and you know high fructose rest in motion yada yada none, none of those existed yet um and juxtapose was still a quarterly originally back then and it just had like a little line listing in like eight font or maybe six font at the end of the issue where you could kind of if you were if you know galleries had their shit together and got their listings in early enough you could see what was going on um so we started compiling all the listings that I was on from just various email lists and just going out too often and collecting all the postcards when they actually still mattered and um, compiling all of that into a weekly little email and within a couple months we were like three four five thousand um, it grew really quickly um, people signed up for it to get the details to where it was getting to the point where we would be out at shows and people would come up to my wife and I and thank us for letting them know about that show they're there because of us and things like that and it was kind of wild and we got uh pretty popular on the scene in nineteen eighty eight and started like actually putting the little Sour Harvest logo icon that Brendan Monroe made for us on the back of their postcards as like kinda like Sour Harvest approved. And um that that, that went on for about a year and then um one faithful day in like the summer of two thousand and five we were all hanging out over off of Melrose. Um Elsie from Cannibal Flower had gotten a very small little Storefront right off of Melrose, I'd say like maybe uh, two hundred square feet, I and mean, it was tidy. And um, he was kind of trying to have a gallery outlet to help nurture folks like Luke Chu and Joe Ledbetter and Thomas Han and uh, Joshua Pecker, Sylvie G. A lot of the artists that were making waves early on at Cannibal flower but there wasn't a space to kind of help them go to the next level. And you know, galleries that had just opened, like 1988 and a few others, were starting to you know, see the writing on the wall and we're starting to, you know, invite folks over to shows and I don't think Elsie wanted that since he had did so much with Cannibal Flower at that point, so he opened the art annex and it was open for like maybe a month. Um, It wasn't, hadn't really done a proper show yet, it was just showcasing inventory and stock from past Cannibal Flowers and we popped by there one afternoon to see it and um, a collector, or I shouldn't say, sorry, uh, an artist friend of both of ours, uh, Nathan Spohr, that it actually did Cannibal Flower's logo back in the day um, was hanging out too and we were all just hanging out having a smoke and talking about art and we were talking about how Sour Harvest is doing and what Cannibal Flower is going to do next and um, the notion of teaming up kind of came up um, rather organically. It's just one of those things that was like a good yin and yang because Elle already had a lot of the connects with local artists and a pretty good collector. You know foundation and then we had a, a nice mailing list and you know connections to a lot of the collectors that way and a marketing know-how and a business know-how that was what was kind of missing from cannibal and nathan was like what about think space we were just throwing around names and when that one came out we were all like that's pretty fucking cool um we definitely wanted a name that wasn't i don't know just typical i guess And we didn't want to have, like, Hosner Contemporary or Krosky Contemporary because it's about the art. It shouldn't be about your ego and your posturing of your family's name or any such bullshit. Um, No disrespect to galleries that choose to go that route. It's just we chose not to. And once we did that, we kind of started poking around how we were going to, you know, kind of launch it. And within a month, um, word got out and a close... um, They've become really close friends over the years, but back then we didn't know who they were. But uh, a, um, two girls that are a couple, um, Nicole Rosen and Suzette Frank, um, surprised us one day on MySpace, and were like, "Hey, we just bought your d- domain and this that, and another thing." And when we were looking at it, we were like, super perplexed, because we're like, "Are these guys trying to, you know, get one over on us, or are they going to try to sell it to us?" It was it was super super early on, and it was just one of those things that they're they're both super entrenched in the the tech industry that's what they do for the living and they were like look man we did this as a favor for you because if not somebody else would have done this we're like oh shit you know just and again i mean this is very early days of the internet um so we were like rad and we we met with them and a couple days later and they gave us everything so it was all officially in our hands and then they went and uh helped us uh once we designed our logo they, they bought our first sign for us as like a little opening gift. Oh Um, just like really crazy stuff that just shows how amazing the art community is.
0: Were were they just like involved in, in the, in the Sour Harvest blog? Were they readers of the blog and that's why they got so excited?
1: They were readers of the blog and we had met them real briefly at a 1988 benefit show once before, and they had beat us out on a couple of things in the auction that night. So we got to talk with them. So I think they just felt we were kindred spirits and, um, got on with us. And I think they were excited that another, uh, a Couple more people in the scene were going to be crazy enough to launch a gallery and help them see more art, so they wanted to be a part of it. And um, yeah, they're still a part of our family to this day. And Suzette still helps with our website, and Nicole's still a big supporter uh, on a, on a patron front.
0: That's amazing. It's it's a very kind of punk rock approach. I mean, even back with Cannibal Flower, it seems a very punk rock rock approach to like doing a gallery event, and then you guys come along and sort of the you know communication aspect of it and marketing and then you combine together it's it's like punk rock the whole way through
1: <laughs> oh 100 percent. i mean especially coming from where we come from from the metal side of the music spectrum and stuff um we realized early on that you know collaboration's key you know a metal band can't really go out and tour by itself it's got to tour with two or three other acts from two or three other like-minded labels so they all put in money time bandwidth you know exposure and pull from each artist's fan base and then you've got a an event um and early on we knew that doing group shows was going to be important because we saw how impactful that create fixate and cannibal flower were not to mention we were coming out of the ashes you know oh, i shouldn't say ashes it's still going to this day but coming out of you know the cannibal flower school of things and we just kind of amplified it and gave it a a, a business backbone
0: that's very cool. And, and so it was originally in Melrose and then it moved to S- Silver Lake for a while?
1: Yeah, we were in Melrose for brr, five or six months in the space that i had from a friend. And I think like, yeah, because we were we, we, there in November. We had to move in May because the beginning of May came up to us, the guy that was basically letting us have the space. And naively enough my wife and i never really asked the scenario of how we got the space (laughs) um we probably should have i think we just assumed it was rented or locked in and we were just i mean it was never even a plan to do this for a year it was just like let's have some shows let's have a few parties and it just kind of kept snowballing and doing its thing um and one day this gentleman came in and was like oh hey uh that's cool you guys are you know having some success here and the space is fun but uh... My wife wants to open a hair salon. I'm going to let her have this uh, space, and we're like, "Oh, cool!" When and he's like, "End of the month," and we had, it was a, yeah. I mean, I I I think for a good a good amount of time, we all were just like, "Oh, it was fun when it lasted." And we were trying to wrap our heads around how to do it. And we knew we couldn't get into a space that quickly. And we had, um, Lola, uh, Lola Gill now, but back then just Lola, um, her first solo booked um for the following month and we did we were and we knew it was going to be a big show because she had just had uh her first solo kind of focus at cannibal flower and that went over really big and my wife and i owned a couple pieces and we knew many piece, people that you know were excited about this sh- coming out so to speak for her and maybe uh three to six months earlier we had been to a pop-up show out in silver lake at uh at the space that uh turned out logan hicks the uh world-renowned stencil artist um owns and operates and it was just his studio and he was really good friends with leslie Repido, um an artist that isn't really a, that active anymore she's kind of more of a mom and doing her own little things on her etsy but back then she was a pretty prominent artist and she had curated a show there at logan space that we had went to and um we were just sitting there rocking our brains And, um, Leslie's like, just go out there and talk to him. And I'm like, all right. So I drove out there on a whim, knocked on the door, Logan answered. He's like, Hey Andrew. And, uh, I I pitched him on the notion of, Hey, would you, uh, mind cleaning up the front of this gallery? There was like a boat in there (laughs) and all sorts of crazy shit. It was just his storage. And, um, and then his studio was in the back where he cut stencils all day. And I was like, Hey man, you'd save us. Can we just do this for like three to six months until we find a space? And he's like, Awesome. He's like, I can't say no. He's like, let's do this. And um he came on board and let us do that. We were able to open our show, we didn't miss a beat. Wow. And um for about six months we coexisted with us in the front and his studio in the middle kinda and then in the back we had like a little office that we both shared. And right around the time we were getting to the point where we knew we had to find new digs, he had decided he was gonna move to New York, where he's been ever since. And he was like, hey, man, he's like, I've got a pretty killer lease here. Do you guys want to take it over? And we were like, shit, yeah. Um, gave us a little bit more space. When he moved out, that's when the project room was birthed, okay. uh, when we started doing two shows a month, because we were able to make his studio into a smaller second gallery space. And um, I think we hung out there for about another year, um, and right there at that Silver Lake Sunset Junction area, which really put us on the map. Um it was just a lawless, kind of off-the-radar part of L.A. We would start our shows on Fridays at, like, 7, and they'd be going to one or two. Um, it was just, there were parties. We were sponsored by Grolsch and um, Doers, So, I mean, we had, like, literally, like, cases and cases and cases of the flip-top Grolsch, um, I mean, which is an expensive beer and a nice board to begin with. And um, and then Doers, which was a really nice scotch, and word got out and we would be listed on openbar.com every month and just these like <laughs> sites that existed back then that I think enabled people to, you know, get wasted all weekend and not ever spend a dime if you took advantage of the flourishing art movement that was all over L.A. Um, it was a pretty comical site back then. Um, once we started growing up, we went out of our way to not get listed on there, to be honest. But um <laughs>
0: like thanks but no thanks
1: exactly Uh, once we kind of realized that oh we should focus on selling art um but we were just working on getting the name out there and we were still selling a lot of art but it was still very much a a a mini cannibal flower i mean it was very much a a gathering and it was uh pretty incredible and like the whole block would fill up with people
0: how did you end up in culver city
1: um we were starting to you know the artists we were working with were are starting to get pretty popular and we had just did natalia fabia's debut um solo show hooker mansion and um it was really well received we sold a lot of the work and the biggest piece in the show oddly enough sold to uh bruce and jan helford uh who unbeknownst to us were in in the stages of getting ready to open a gallery over in culver city and um I don't know, a month or two later, we were, we were like, oh, this show went great, Natalia, you want to do another show? And she was like, oh, shit, uh, I already agreed to do another show at this new gallery. And we we're like, what? We kind of like started looking into it and, and um, then realized they were starting to hit up a number of folks that we were working with, which was, you know, our own fault. We should have been thinking more long term and should have been thinking bigger from the get go. And we kind of like, we're like, we need to investigate this Culver City thing a little bit more, which, you know, was right near our house as opposed to other side of the moon where we were in Silver Lake. It took us like an hour to get there on the weekends to open the gallery and stuff. Um, So we just kind of started keeping an eye over there and um, we noticed the black market spot um, that I mentioned earlier was on the market. And um, we went and had a look at it and uh, it was perfect. And we decided to make a few things, add a couple walls, change a couple things in the flow. So it was more ours and not just slipping on another person's pair of shoes and, um, hit the ground running. Um, and, and again, we're lucky enough to never have had to miss a show that we had booked, never were closed for more than a couple days. And, um, In our entire 15 years, we've been lucky like that. We're in our third spot right now here in Culver City, and each one has just always flowed right into the next. And uh, we know that going into 2020, we'll probably be looking to uh, move to our fourth spot just due to the way things go. And and when a bunch of galleries come into a certain part of the city, we've raised up the rents and the square footage too much to where signing another extension of our lease is just going to get too expensive. And a lot of the other galleries in the town are already starting to vacate and move to other places in la so whenever i mention that to people everyone's already like where and it's like well it's a year from now let's see what happens so <laughs> we'll start looking in summer 2020 to see where the next home's going to be and a lot of the artists that we work with that have maybe done two or three solos at the current spot
0: mm-hmm.
1: they're excited i've mentioned it to them i think everyone's kind of it makes sense every i think 10 years at least for a, a gallery to move, unless you've got some big, super, super huge space.
0: Besides just being more affordable, what kind of goals do you have for the new space? Do you want it to be bigger? Do you want it to be, do you have anything in mind?
1: Um, we want it to be about the same size, maybe the front a little smaller. The front room is pretty big in terms of like, what what the demands of somebody for a a, a solo. And um, definitely have a small project room still, but we want the back room to be like three times what it is now. I I would love the back room to be bigger than our front gallery, to be honest. Um, We're doing so many museum shows moving ahead and a lot of other things of that stature that um, storage is is paramount for us. And we want to be able to have like a dedicated print area and dedicated ship area and stuff. But we used to have, but as we've grown, it's just been overtaken by storage and, um, we get by now, but we know that having a bigger backend would, uh, it's just going to make my, my team's life a lot easier. Sure. Um, which is, you know, the most important thing to me cause they, they make us run and are who we are.
0: Very cool. Um, obviously collaboration has been something you, you're really big on over the years. Um, I mean, I think space alone was sort of born out of a collaboration, <laughs> Um, it's really ingrained in the DNA. So one example of that over the years has been the beyond Eden event. So I wanted to chat with a little bit about that, that that started back in 2010 and, and I think in its original form lasted like five years and then has been resurrected again this year, this past a couple months ago at designer con. How did that all first begin? How did that get started?
1: It was start when it started it was, the first one was called East of Eden. And, um, it ultimately was the the brainchild of, uh, I can't think of his last name right now, but Mike, um, the gentleman that used to run Junk Gallery, J-U-N-C, um, right at pretty much almost catty corner from us at the Silver Lake Junction area. And he was, uh, a lot of people don't remember him or it was too early in the movement, but um, where Giant Robot is and GR2 is now. He was very much, I mean, they were still around back then, but he was, he followed their mold. He definitely got a lot of kids right when they came out of Art Center. He had a specific vision and he was the first gallery to really like champion Brendan Monroe and um, who we were like huge fans of back then. So we were constantly over at his space, like, you know, supporting him and vice versa. And um, we were all in a part of L.A. that was just a little funky. Um, L.A. has little sections that if you're from one area, you won't go to that area and vice versa just because <laughs> of geography and drive time and shit. And there was a lot of really cool cutting-edge spaces like ourselves and junk out in that area at the time. And we just knew if we banded together and you know, screamed together, we'd make a louder noise and get noticed. And he was like, what if we did a small little you know, an art fair without walls was his, was his notion. And he and I talked quite a bit along with uh, Tulsa Kinney, um, who ran a little space out there. And we were able to get the ear of uh, the director over at the Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery, which was located on the grounds of the uh, Barnsdale Art Park, which is a little forgotten gem of just a few acres of goodness up on a hill in Hollywood that's just filled with sculptures and just little arts theater and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's early house and just like a lot of hidden art gems are up there that uh, pretty much a community of 50 and olders knew about but the the younger art generation didn't and we kind of pitched them that hey this is will be a twofer you know you'll help us and we're also gonna greatly help you by bringing a you know a couple thousand people that are primarily under 50 up here and um, and we rolled into the idea of doing East of Eden. I think there was six or seven of us um, early on. I, I honestly think that we're the only one of the batch that's still around, of the galleries wow. that gathered together for that first East of Eden. I'd have to like look, but I'm 90% sure on that. Um, and we did it and it cracked off really well. Um, and then when it came time to do it the next year, a couple of the galleries had already faded away. Um, Mike from Junk was starting to realize that this wasn't what he wanted to do. I think he wanted to be a teacher a little bit more, um, which I believe he still is a teacher to this day out at Art Center. And we were kind of like, shit, um, we don't want to let this go. So I had a meeting with uh, the folks there at LaMog, the municipal gallery, and um, a couple other friends, um, including Lee Joseph, who was um, a big. Uh, arts PR guy back in the day, and um, pitched them on the notion of what if we went a little bit of a different route and, you know, came up with the idea of Beyond Eden, so it tied to East of Eden, but basically the notion of that title was that it was, you know, just showing this underbelly of the art movement that wasn't really getting a whole lot of attention at the time and bringing us all together and, you know, kind of throwing a party. And uh, it came out amazing. I think that first one we had 3,500 people show up over the course of the two days and um, just knew that something was clicking then. And the people at the Barnsdell loved it. And each year that it grew, we kind of started incorporating the theater into it and having movies play there, um, Mr. Bitchin and many other ones. And it just was a moment in time, so to speak, I think as my partner LC puts it, it was just right time, right place. And it was just, you know, magic was created. um, And we somehow all magically got along. And uh, I mean, looking back, those are pretty crazy um, events because we had about four days in there to hang an entire, you know, 15,000 square foot space (laughs) and and, and then run with it. Um, And then those led to, a really good relationship with the director there, which down the line, a couple of years after after having done a couple of the beyond um I was connected with Robert Williams by Greg Escalani, rest his soul, um, the old uh, mastermind behind Juxtapose and Copro Gallery, and he was basically like, we were just chatting, like, hey, you know, Bob's got a new body of work and nowhere to nowhere to put it, and he's always wanted to have a show at La Mag. He's like, and I know you have an in. he's like, you should go out and have a meeting with him. And uh, I was like, yeah, fucking A. Um, went out and met with him at his house. And where's Bob Lifts Sean? Carlsbad? Chatsworth, Chatsworth. And um, like sadness in his studio, just ogling at these masterpieces all over the place that he's creating. And he's, we had met a couple times prior and he's just the most down to earth like guy you can imagine for a legend um and and i don't think anyone can argue that statement about him um i would argue it with anybody he's definitely a fucking legend and we sat and he he explained to me how when he was a kid in the 60s he went to dolly's show there at Lamog and how he was at every day he was at the show and he never missed a day and for all two months it was up he went every day and it was the most you know life-changing experience and influential thing that he's ever went through. And he told himself then that, you know, before I die, I'm going to have a show at La And it was just like, wow, um, let me see what I can do. So I went and had a meeting the next day with Scott, knowing that I had Robert's full blessing to, to make it happen. And Scott was totally into it. And I remember calling Robert the next day and he's like, I've talked to Scott a bunch of times. He never called me back. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you, Bob, but I, I got my foot in the door. Let's let's fucking make this happen. And um, we went out there and we had a meeting. And that's pretty much the day that we locked in Slang Aesthetics. And from there, we hit up Gwynedd and Evan from Juxtapose, kind of going, hey, this is all coming together pretty beautifully. And your 20-year anniversary is next year. Can we do a 20 years of Juxtapose in tandem with Slang Aesthetics? and um they loved the idea um and looking back it was one of the it's definitely a touchstone moment in our history and um a touchstone moment i think in la history and definitely a big part of bobs you know end of his career so to speak i mean definitely the cherry on his uh career sunday as he put it and That show then went to travel on, I think we traveled it to six other museums. We were involved in four of the other five. Um, And now he just launched his new body of work um, this past October up in Seattle. That's amazing. Uh, That was a pretty magical, huge thing for the movement, for Juxtapose, for Bob, for us. Um, And then somehow, miraculously, bewilderingly, right after that, a new director came on board. We were like, oh, man, this next Beyond Needs is going to be a slam dunk after this. (laughs) Um, Went in early in the year to have a meeting with her. And she was like, oh, this all sounds good. Okay, it's probably going to cost you guys about $20,000. And we're like, huh? And evidently, the old director was supposed to be renting us this space and just never thought to because he felt that they were getting that much and more out of it, which they were. Sure. And she kind of was looking at it now of look at how, you know, how big these have all been, we've obviously done a lot for you. And we're like, look, and then I kind of had to try to come to the reality with her that look, but all your other events before that drew like nobody. Um, and now a whole bunch of new people are coming up here and it's trickling over into your, you know, movie events that you do throughout the year. And it's just like, it was, it was, it was palpable. You know, you could tell that it was making an impact on everything up there. And her having not been there for any of that growth or development, wasn't seeing it that way and um we had already had that fifth beyond eden all booked um it was ready to go um so we went ahead and did it and that was the first one where we had a charge admission um i was basically able to go hey let us still do this but the following week we'll have you that 20k and we got our normal couple thousand people through the door and we charged 10 bucks a pop so we were able to get that money together and we then paid her um, just to, you know, follow through. Um, and the last day of the show, that Sunday, um, I decided to just do like, there was probably a couple hundred people there because Sundays were always good because it was more of a family day and people that didn't want to you know, deal with all the drinking and the partying aspect of like the openings of those on Fridays. And I was just like, hey, thanks everybody for coming wanted to let you know that sadly this is going to be the last day of the last beyond eden ever it wasn't our plans but you know due to you know powers that be not seeing the uh worth of it all and us not really wanting to charge ten dollars admission to this um we're gonna bow out and go out on top instead of you know going to someplace smaller and you know just doing it half-assed and um i think like 20 minutes later a girl came up and tapped me on the shoulder and it was Shannon that used to run this gallery out in North Hollywood that we had did a small little pop-up with four or five years earlier. Um, and she's like, Andrew, she's like, I'm working at this amazing library now called the brand library out in Glendale. You need to come check it out. And n- never heard of it much like Barnes doll is kind of a beautiful gym built in the sixties that just kind of feigned from, you know, being on people's radar and was kind of catering to a 50 and older crowd and went out there and the space is epic and that's where we now do our biannual nexus event um it wasn't quite as big and didn't have quite as many rooms as beyond eden she really wanted us to keep it to be beyond eden but i didn't want it to be like i was saying earlier i didn't want it to be a shadow of what it once was and it just didn't seem like it was going to be able like three or four galleries would fit but not six or seven and i was like let's let's do this but let's do it something else and make it all us and it's got enough rooms to where we can do a couple big solos and then a couple group shows and then a big sweeping grounds and stuff and we've been doing those now our third one's coming up in november of 2020 there and um the first two are really well received a couple thousand people showed up to each and it's just a beautiful space with one of the best collection of art books that i've ever seen um and oddly enough a couple artists that we work with that live in glendale came to that first show and they were like dude i've lived 10 mile or, or, or 10 minutes from here <laughs> um and w- w- one guy lived within a couple miles of it and he's like i never knew this was here um and it's just an epic epic place to just kind of discover art and get inspired and there's like a koi pond and all sorts of stuff it's um it's pretty special so um then you know fast forward a couple years to having a meeting with ben grotsky from DesignerCon earlier this year and uh, Heidi from Hijinks Arts, um, one of the big PR teams in town that really supports the arts movement here, um, hit me up and were like, "Hey, do you want to come on out and maybe uh, talk about bringing an art gallery element to Designer Con?" Um, it was something that Ben always wanted to do, but just didn't really know how to go about it properly, I guess. And knew that you know we had a lot of connects and had you know dabbled in it before. Um, and one thing led to another, and, uh, now it's back. In November, we, we, we launched it, and, uh, we were kind of off in the corner, and it wasn't the best location, but it came, came about in August. Um, so, I mean, he gave us the best spot and the best, you know, go, best run, I guess you could, considering that we had a couple months to do it. And we, we were still able to get six other galleries and the Fullerton Museum Center on board. And um it cracked off pretty well, so next year we'll be more in the middle. We'll have a much nicer spot have more time to put it together, hopefully have a little closer to ten galleries and really kind of bridge the gap between the you know the gateway drug that is designer con and the art world because that's where you know you go to get a, like a cheap little hand painted you know sculpture or you know a one off you know hand touched print or a print run and i mean it's 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 very much the gateway drug for getting into fine arts. I mean, just like prints are and things of that nature. I think once you start buying four or five prints a month, you realize, oh hell, if I didn't do this for two months and just saved this, I can maybe get a small original. And that's what happened to us back in the day. I mean, uh, Mary Kronowski one day was like, Hey, you guys are buying a lot of prints. You know, if you, uh, do payments, you can maybe do a, a, a bigger, uh, bigger piece. And we're, my wife and I looked at each other and we're like, payments? <laughs> She's like, yeah, I'll do payments for up to like a year. You guys rule. And, you know, we were super supportive of her and vice versa. And I think that's when we got our first, like, piece that was four figures. I think we got like a $1,200 Camille Rose Garcia that took us just about a year to pay off. Wow. But um, looking back, I mean, that was one of those instances that really kind of made us go, oh, shit, we can, we can collect even though we have a pretty small income. Um, we've had friends that are a little bit older that are very versed in the art world call us the Herb and Dorothy of <laughs> New Contemporary, just because, I mean, we've never, neither one of us have ever made much over, you know, 50, 60K a year or whatever, but we, you know, have just bought frugal, you know, just bought early, bought what we love. And that's still what we preach to collectors and patrons that we work with to this day. I mean, because people come over to the house and be like, oh my God, how'd you guys afford the, a Barry McGee or that David Cho or we're like when we bought that was a thousand dollars or when we bought that was six hundred dollars and people will be like how'd you know and it's like I, I don't have a time machine it's like I just bought it because I liked it and I'm right. like luckily we have a pretty good eye I guess it's showing over the years and at the same time you just got to trust your gut you know and I mean honestly there's probably a hundred pieces in our collection of we probably got 700 pieces we need to catalog it we gave. We started two years ago, and then we haven't continued.
0: So you don't. You don't have any kind of record of what all you have.
1: No, sadly, we do not. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, no, uh, I'll be honest. We do not. Uh, if anyone out there is listening and wants to help us, hit us up. Um, but um, I mean, we've got the first three or four hundred on an Excel grid, and then. But that that I think in five years we haven't been able to even think about updating it. Um, But everything's all beautifully stored and beautifully packaged and, you know, out in our garage, temperature controlled and this, set and other things. So, um, and now, I mean, for three or four years now, every time we buy a piece, it's Sophie's choice. Something's got to come down and go away. Um, And every time I go out there to put something away, I always see something that I wouldn't mind coming back in and putting out. But then then we're in the same situation. Oh, shit, something's got to come
0: down. Do you feel that you guys being such avid collectors has made you better at running the gallery?
1: I, It's definitely a part of it um, because I think we can relate to people a lot easier and I'll, I'll, I love going to people's houses and putting up a piece. I'm not going to charge you <laughs> like most galleries will in town. Um, I'm actually going over to collector friends on I think Monday next week just to hang out and put up like 20 pieces with him that have accumulated over the past year that uh, he hasn't had time to put up and, he, he spends a lot of money with us. We've become friends. And honestly, I think it's going to be a fun day. We'll probably just twist up a couple and hang out and, you know, <laughs> put up art and smoke and have a good time talking about art. So uh, I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. Um, but, yeah, it, it definitely it definitely does. And I think it helps us connect with the artists a little bit more. I still got a super creative, you know, artistic side to me when it comes to our marketing and a lot of the cool installations and things like that that we've done over the years and the projects that we've done at the museums with powwow and others um a lot of the crazy installation ideas have been birthed from just sitting down with the artists um spitballing and throwing ideas out at them and they're like oh i never thought about that or they'll throw out an idea that i then build on so um things of that nature are really exciting and special um and i think it always brings new ideas to our head of what we can do um and a lot of the duo shows and that we've done over the years like it's been just artists that i thought their palette would work really nicely with each other or that there was a thin red line that connected the two bodies of work and more often than not the the two artists didn't really know each other and now you know looking back on most of those duo shows that we've done over the years the artists are still like best buds it's just like we brought two kindred spirits together that have you know created magic multiple times over since the show's ended Um, And it's just kind of neat to see that building a small bridge like that can lead to so much beauty being shared with the world later on.
0: For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yet another example of sort of the spirit of collaboration that, that you always seem to have. Um, are these roadshow style exhibitions you, 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 where you team up with galleries to put on a show in their space. It's the LAX slash whatever other airport you go to. Um, how important have these collaborative shows become in your yearly lineup?
1: Um, we're pulling back on them greatly going into this year. I think we've only got, we've only got one this year in June at uh, ABV Gallery, Greg Mike's Space. Um, we went really hard the last two years um, going into 2020 and 2021 we're focusing a bit more on the institutional aspect of things with um we've got like four five museum shows a couple university shows and a library show so um but with the lax series of collaborative shows i I knew early on that it was going to be super important going back to what we were talking about with like bands touring in the metal side of the music world and um it's just helped helped get our name out there in a great way um it's helped a lot of the artists get another strong gallery behind them in a great way because each time we do one of those i'd say half dozen to a dozen artists that were in that show then get picked up by said gallery to do you know shows throughout the year other group shows they do two three four person shows Some sometimes the solos um, and that's ultimately what we wanna do is just create as many opportunities as we can for the creatives that we work with to enable them to actually do it full time, to, to make a living off of what they do. Because if we're only offering them one show a year, it makes it a little bit more difficult to do that. Um, and what that also said, we knew the movement just had to be exposed as much as possible. Um, social media has been magical for this movement over the last decade. And with that said, it's put the art in the hands of a lot of people on their, you know, two by two, three by three inch screens. But so many people that live outside of, uh, you know, let's say one of the the main, like six to 10 big cities in the world, they never get to see this work. Or if they do, there's maybe one gallery in their market, but it's only doing, you know, a handful of shows each year with artists from the scene. And it's just usually a solo or something. So they've never really had that opportunity to see so many of one style, you know, the new contemporary movement encapsulated into like, you know, 100 artists in one spot. Um so when we do those really big traveling shows, I've had people ask like why didn't we when we put them together why weren't they more focused and I told them that my notion was showing how fast and just varied the movement is. I mean, I I I've been quoted as saying that it's almost more who you show with and who you show alongside in the last five years that has made the New Contemporary what it is over a particular style, like when it was more pop surrealism or lowbrow, which were both uh, titles that were a little too confining for where, you know, how vast the the movement was becoming. Um, and when High Fructose started kind of having New Contemporary included in their masthead, it was already a term that was getting banded around out there for about a year. And we just knew it was... For lack of a better term just perfect um it is kind of an oxymoron because it's just new new <laughs> but um I actually saw that term uh on the walls of the chicago museum of contemporary art like just earlier this year being used in a slightly different context um kind of explaining how like the contemporary that they're featuring is the new contemporary because it's different than warhol and Basquiat and stuff so obviously the history books will in the next 10 to 20 years come up with a a better term or maybe we'll stick with new contemporary we'll see we shall see what the uh the scholars go with but um
0: we need to get you out here to austin
1: i know we've been looking into it we're totally done i mean and that's the thing we've we've never really pursued these we've always let them come about organically like we'll be hanging out with the gallery two three years in a row at an art fair and you know we're like and they'll just be like, "Oh man, we love what you guys do," and it just kind of comes about. We don't really want to invite ourselves in anywhere. Oh, where I guess we're, <laughs> like a vampire in that way or something. <laughs> I don't know, but we want to be invited in. So you know, and because we've been hit up a lot of times over the years, where it's is obvious that it's just a gallery that no one's ever heard of, and they're just hoping that we can come and you know bring them a bunch of attention. But we always want it to be somebody that's already making a noise, so to speak. But in a market that's not, you know, an A market or you know, more of a secondary tertiary market, and you know, have it be mutually beneficial for the artists and us and that gallery to to do it, you know, so we all get something out of it. Um, when we did our second one in Detroit with the with the guys at One X Run and Interstate a few f- few years back, um, I I overheard one of my favorite quotes that I still like reference quite a bit to this day um this girl was looking at her friend and she's like fuck man this is awesome I love this show it's like my Instagram feeds come to life in front of me <laughs> and I'm like man that's fucking rad you know and I even tapped her on the shoulder I'm like I overheard that that's awesome thank you uh, my wife and I put this show together with her f- friend and you know that's the best fuel I could have you know gotten out of this tonight you know and Told her I was gonna, you know, quote her many times over the years, and uh, she was like, "Oh, thanks." But um, no, it was, honestly, that, that that encapsulates what we were trying to do and what we aim to do with the LAX series. We want to put as many artists that people are already probably familiar with, but let them, you know, see it, see it in front of them in the 3D, you know, real life, and be able to feel the brushstrokes and see see the decisions made and why they did what they did here and there, and um, it's just amazing to see how many creatives from that market will come, not to mention just art lovers in general, but like whenever we do those, like the one we just did in Chicago with Vertical Gallery, like probably 20 local artists came up to me throughout the night. Like I cannot wait to go home and paint. And that's pretty fucking cool, man. I mean, that's like, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, that's amazing.
1: You know, it's like inspiration's what fuels what we do. So uh, to be able to create that for somebody is is special, and at the same time, it's that feedbacks what fuels us to keep doing them um, as well.
0: yeah it sounds like you're you're putting a bigger focus on the institutional shows, like you said, the museum shows. So has that sort of taken a lot of that space in your portfolio?
1: Um I mean, we've been pretty busy the last few years with it, but as we do them, each show opens up another door, so to speak, and each group show that we do with a director slash curator at a museum. I think it opens up it kind of pushes them a little bit more down the rabbit hole in New Contemporary because everyone knows the shepherds and the causes and you know the big names but then people are like oh shit there's a whole you know universe of hundreds of other artists that are just as amazing but just haven't been blessed with that you know exposure that someone like a shepherd or a cause has been and then they I think I think they also then take a look at how those first group show or two did that we curated for them. And they see like how many new bodies came in, how many new, like people under 30 came in and they listen to the feedback over the year following. And it's really starting to lead to us getting small solos for our artists at the institutions that we've done group shows with in the past. And that's ultimately what we want. Um, we, we just did Kevin Peterson, we're working on Kevin Peterson's first big solo for next year. Scent of will have her first big museum solo in 2021. Um, Spencer Little's working on one. Um, So it's just things of that nature that are just the main reason why we're continuing to push, um, try to push the doors open. Um, And we know that the more successful shows that we have at the smaller museums, the more, the bigger museums are going to have to start to pay attention um, because at Long Beach Museum of Art, where we've done the Vitality and Verve exhibitions. It's just 25 miles outside of L.A., so everyone goes. The second one was so big, we had to turn away, like, a a couple thousand people on opening night, um, which was good and bad. Um, (laughs) But the museum was baffled. Um, I mean, I think, like, 5,000 people showed up, and due to fire restrictions and just time, we were only able to get about 3,000 of them through the show. But um, each successive... Vitality and Verve exhibition that we did there broke the attendance records that we set with the first one. Um, they'd been around for like 40, 50 years. The first one drew just over 22, I think. And they were like, this is the biggest show we've ever had. And then the next one drew 24, and then one after that drew 25. So it's just like, that's a lot of people to get into a small museum of about 10,000 square feet in a secondary market. And people pay attention to that. Um, sure. And we're, we're doing a lot with. The fort wayne museum of art on fort wayne indiana we've got uh a really special show coming up there in 2021 that i don't want to mention so no one takes the idea but um it's pretty fucking rad we're working on that right now and then hebrew brantley's gonna have a big show there that we're helping curate awesome. to bring more people in the midwest to his art since he's you know right there from chicago just a couple hours away from fort wayne um and a couple of other things are coming together for 22 and 23 with them in terms of solos for artists that we've had there. Um, we had taken Bob Williams' Slang aesthetic show there as well in the past. And then um, Andy Campioni from the MOA up in Lancaster, just about 70 miles outside of L.A. Um, we're getting ready to do the third edition of Paua Antelope Valley there this September. Oh, nice. And then um, we're taking over the museum, and there'll be solo shows uh, with Mark Dean Vecca, kayla mahaffey kevin peterson and kathy Ager, plus a big group show um so we're really excited about that and um the third edition of nexus is coming up in the fall at the brand library um with a number of amazing solo shows and group shows in the mix so uh and then spencer little has his solo show at moa cedar in the in the summer and um julio Acab a dying We'll have a solo at MOA in 2021. Um, Julio Acab, as most people know him on uh, Instagram. Um, But uh, he'll he'll be coming over and doing some installations out in the desert of his uh, masterpieces that he recreates out there in uh, 2D form when they still look like they're all beautifully framed up. So we're excited about that. There's just a lot of stuff cooking, and I know that the shows that i just mentioned will lead to a couple of other shows that i'm trying to kind of shoehorn in at other spaces that are you know we've got their ear but they're still wanting to see like what we do with the next couple shows um
0: so it's like a snowball effect really is what
1: it's a total snowball effect and we just want to continue with it because ultimately i mean that's what's gonna cement this movement and cement the artists of this movement in the history books is institutional recognition and involvement nothing's going to do it more so in a quicker stronger fashion than than that i'm just looking back historically at how the art world works and how movements like the pop movement and stuff came to you know such importance and prominence was due to a few curators really making moves and taking you know andy over to paris regularly and things of that nature it's just you have to do that to to make a noise, especially in this day and age of the internet where it's a little too easy for people to just drop somebody a DM and, you know, forego a person like myself. And I get that. And that's why we do so much because I think and I, I, I say this all the time. And I mean, some people are like, you're shooting yourself in the foot and it's like, no, I'm shooting you in the foot because you don't hustle like we do. Um, you got to earn your 50% these days, you know, it's too it's too easy for somebody to just have a space and go, oh yeah, I'll do a show and then take your 50%. And it's like, if they're not doing ads in two or three magazines, if their social network's not stronger than yours, and if, you know, they're not really got like a built-in collector base, then why the fuck give them 50%, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm throwing stones at some people and well, get off your ass and work harder.
0: Yeah. I, that's something I wanted to talk to you about. Cause I, I think you mentioned social media earlier and then it's come up again and clearly social media has changed the art scene in ways that we're only just beginning to fully appreciate. Um, but how do you as a gallerist think that other galleries uh, and yourself has to change in order to stay relevant in, in this age?
1: You just got to do a lot more. Like I was saying, um, cause people like, like you never take a break and, this, that, and the set another thing. And it's like, well, it's just too easy for somebody to just go, sure. And reply to that DM and get all the hundred percent. But I think the artists that realize the worth and the weight of a strong gallery are the ones that are still, you know, making the best of both worlds, so to speak. Because, I mean, I, I never make anyone sign, like, an exclusive, exclusive, or like, you can't sell anything to anybody. Because, I mean, it's going to happen, and we can't keep people busy 365 days a year, and people have to live and, and pay bills, and I get that. Um, I do ask during that three- to four-month period, you know, Month or two before, month or two after, you know, to funnel stuff to us, and that's just mutually beneficial for both both parties if the show does well. Um, but to this day, I I've worked with artists that are still selling works out of the back end out of their studio on DM to or, or setting up a commission when I have a show on the walls, and I'm like, whenever I find out about it, I'm just like, really? I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> um, and it's only happened a few times, but it happens. But I just sometimes people don't really get the big picture um so we've taken it upon ourselves the last three to five years especially when we bring on a new artist or somebody you know that maybe's coming over to us or graduating up a notch or whatever um to kind of lay out like hey this is what i'm going to do and this that and this are going to come to you probably within a couple months of starting to work with us just because we have strong connections with this blog and strong connections with this magazine and to not be naive and that it's just magically coming to you it's like to to know that working with us brings a lot of weight brings a lot of benefits brings a lot of return and reward and 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 we really fucking work hard to 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 deserve i feel the percentage that we take um because it is an odd little makeup um that's not like any other business in the world And we decided early on, I mean, even going back to our early days, we have always done pop-ups, even when we weren't doing them in other cities, we were doing North Hollywood, we were doing Venice, we were doing Santa Monica, because LA's fucking huge. So, I mean, you can be making a big, big noise over on the west side, and no one knows who the hell you are or gives a shit about you downtown, so that's why we, you know, did LA Art Show early on and helped launch Little Topia with Greg back in the day, and things it just all goes back to collaboration. Um, And I got interviewed about a year ago by Graffiti Art Magazine out of Paris. And the European art world is still very much where I think the U.S. was like maybe 10 years ago to where it's still very cutthroat and no one collaborates and a lot of the galleries don't really seem to get along. Um, And it's exciting now for me to like see, you know, you see people like Antler and Paradigm doing like, exchange shows now and stuff like that and i'm not saying i gave them that idea but there was definitely nobody else doing collaborative gallery shows when we started them 10 years ago i mean it was very much a, a bewildering thing for every press person that has ever talked to me about it they're just like but you're helping your competition it's like
0: ah. rising tide raises all ships right i mean if everybody's successful then you're successful
1: i i i, I think so too yeah, I think so too. I mean, the bigger the movement gets, the bigger we can all become as galleries, as long as we take advantage of the, you know, opportunities presented to us. You know, some people do, some people don't. Um, I mean, the first collaborative show we ever did back in the day in Chicago, um, I mean, he, he closed a few years later. I mean, it wasn't because he didn't collaborate further or anything like that. But um, it's funny. I mean, I think two or three of the galleries that we collaborated with have have closed and as have many of the other galleries that, you know, I looked up to or at one point bought from, or, you know, or or someone like shooting gallery in San Francisco that just seemed to make every wrong decision you could possibly make. And is now like kind of like probably the most martyrized person of the entire movement of what he did. Um, Oh, that's the wrong term. Sorry. But just the most reviled person. You know, he's just, what he did is, uh, Seeing things like that kind of just show you how easy it is I feel to just do right by folks right. Um, I mean as long as you just pay people on time, treat them respectfully and return works when you want to and, and 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 bust your ass to get their their work out there you're you're kicking ass as a gallery, and there's so many people that just can't seem to do that that are, are a gallery you know, and um, I mean there's a couple right now that I know are starting to uh ruffle feathers pretty badly and you know pay slowly and you know the words out so everyone's kind of starting to keep an eye i guess on their rosters because they've got some good artists and if they're going to go the way of the dodo then let me help out some of the folks that i've always respected and collected that you work with but you're not going to work with anymore so
0: is is having a diverse revenue streams important or, or even like necessary to be successful today with prints and books and all the different avenues that you have
1: oh for sure I mean, there, there's months where a, a good print, a print release will, you know, cover our basic costs. Um, and we try to do that, you know, as often as we can because then that allows us to invest more and put more back into the bigger, uh, museum shows we're working with. Cause a lot of the museum shows we're doing, we're funding, uh, we're getting like maybe two, three K which covers like some travel. Um, cause we're dealing with museums that are, you know, smaller and aren't really, you know, have those 10, 20, 30, $100,000 budget set, you know, you hear about for bigger museum shows. Um, but that's why we're able to, we always work it out to where we can offer the works for sale on the back end. Obviously they're not going to be for sale at the museum. Um, and working with smaller, you know, museums and secondary and tertiary markets, they're able to kind of allow us to do that. I don't think like a LACMA going to let a curator come in and, so works out the back end because that kind of goes against the cardinal rule of not being able to have a monetary gain from said exposure at institutions. Um so we're kind of in that middle ground right now. Um and whenever we do that, whenever we do have a successful show, we always donate some back to the museum that let us do that, which, you know, works out to be a nice tax deduction for us, you know, gets the gallery in, a little bit more in cahoots with the museum and it's just a nice symbiotic relationship at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean obviously you've helped launch the careers of many artists over the years, uh the 15 years that you guys have been around. Are there any newer or upcoming artists that you have your eye on right now?
1: Yeah, and I've learned over the years to not really mention them too often. <laughs> so, but uh I mean if um but there's a couple artists that are about to really crack wide open over the year ahead that we've got a lot of stuff positioned with that we're excited to really be working with. I mean, two artists from Europe that we've put a lot of time and effort into over the last couple of years, I think 2020 and 2021 are going to be years that they're on everyone's radar, Super and Dulc especially. Um, And then, like, uh, new artists um, that we're really excited about, Kayla Mahaffey and Max Sansing out of Chicago. Um, Super excited with where both of them are taking their work, and we've got a lot lined up with both of them over the next couple of years. And um there's a few others that are uh just starting to come on board. But um until everything's kind of inked I'm not gonna mention their names here unfortunately, you know, just because uh a lot of a lot of people out there curate by red dots or let us discover people and whatnot. So and I I, I we've picked up our artists from you know, other galleries over the years, but I've never headhunted them, I guess you could say. I mean, I let them come to us if they're not happy or realizing that there can be more, so to speak. When I mentioned earlier how, you know, when we were starting to have success with Natalia Falbi and some people, you know, another gallery came along and, and grabbed them. And I wouldn't even say that they necessarily headhunted them. Um, at the time, it hurt. It, it cut like a razor. But after, you know, 13, 14 years of having that happen you get a little bit of a thicker skin and you also realize that that's a good thing for said artists and at the same time that just opens the door for you to you know welcome somebody else into your roster into your family and help make them that next big thing and you know watch them grow and with us and the one thing that's been nice is over the last you know five to seven years especially is we've gotten to a spot now to where most people are comfortable growing with us um but now, with the advent of, I guess, a lot of the artists from our movement starting to kind of get to that next level of success, which I guess, doing museum shows like I do, I'm kind of f- fueling this. Um, but I'm oh, my own worst enemy, in a way. But, I mean, more and more blue chips are realizing that, oh, I I need them. Mark Ryden. I need a shepherd fairy. I need a cause, you know, to kind of be cool and look like they have some clue of what's going on with the the greater art market, which they don't, but you know, that lets them seem like they do. And so they kind of come along and there's quite a lot of cannibalism going on. I think it's gonna be a lot more of it going into 20 and 21 and 22 as more galleries like ourselves that are really starting to get our artists out there on an international stage via fairs and you know institutional shows and stuff like that that the more the brighter the light is that we shine on them the more eyes are starting to go hmm interesting so it's 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 a double edged sword in a a lot of ways but as i think as long as you continue to hustle and you know work as hard as we we can whatever um people will want to hang around
0: what what sort of advice would you have for new artists who are just getting started in their careers and and want to get noticed Hmm.
1: I get asked that a lot. And it's a tough one nowadays. Um, I, I often like think if I was a teenager in this day and age and having to live with like social network bullying and just all that shit, it's just such a different world. Such even just from 10 years ago, even though the internet was around 10 years ago, it's vastly changed with how people are, you know, how things are perceived and, and there's just some more social networks than ever before. It's like, which ones do you focus on? Especially with Instagram being kind of shit these days. Um, but I think more than anything, I still think it goes back to getting your work seen. And I always tell artists, like, get together, form a small community, even if it's just going to your local Drink and Draw and, like, meeting more people there. Um, but there's strength in numbers always wins. And if you can get together with, like, 10 other friends and rent a space and each pop in a hundred bucks for the month and you throw a big ass rad party even if you don't sell anything that month getting seen getting exposure making making noise is the best thing you can do i feel um and just being a part of your local scene um i mean don't hit up a gallery saying that you want to show with them when you've never gone there it's like it's like i'll have people come in and be like oh man I love your gallery. Like, well, I your It's like, I've never seen you. I'm mean, like, I'm really good with faces. I will remember a face if I, you know, years later, if I've seen it. And I'm just like, you've never been in my space. And like, now you're sitting here like telling me how much you love us. And this, that, and the other thing. It's like, I don't have a conversation with them about that. Cause I mean, one time permits and we still, I mean, we haven't done them in about a year, but my partner else, is now doing them at his bar, the art bar over on Venice. He's doing them once a week now, I think on Saturdays or Sundays, but we were for the longest time, like the only gallery in town that would would do like walk-in portfolio reviews on on Fridays, we would do them. And there's a couple artists that we found through that, that we still work with to this day. It's time consuming and, and, um, you know, maybe only one in 10 are ready for prime time, I guess, for lack of a better term. But with that said, I mean, Elsie, my partner, um, is really good at just finding that one little positive that kind of will help people, you know, spark that creative juices. And um he's got the gift of gab, I will say. And um I know many a person that, you know, probably would have maybe given up in other circumstances is, you know, has been fueled when they have left us. And with that said, I mean, I, at least a half dozen artists that we still show to this day have have come in and been exposed to us via, via just the walk-in. So, I mean, and and we still look at every, I still look at every submission via DM or email or whatever. I mean, when people DM me going, how do I submit? It's like, have you even spent two minutes on our website? It's right there. (laughs) Um, And I always kind of walk them through that. I'm like, man, don't be such a millennial, like I can't do anything without asking somebody a question. It's just like, just Google. Man, Google is an amazing tool that I don't think a lot of people seem to realize how to use anymore and I think also it just gets them maybe just asking the questions a quick simple way to get some interaction and I get that too but it's just like that old meme of the I love it whenever it pops back up on Twitter or Instagram where it's like hi I'll be at 5th and Main today from 1 to 2pm selling cherry pies for 5 bucks each and then it's like a little photo grab of like the questions underneath it's like Oh, cool! What kind of pies? How much are they gonna be? Where are you gonna be? <laughs> <laughs> Where are they at? And I was just like just, just fucking read people It's right there um, but I mean, I got a little off topic there, but I think just I, I just just being present, being present in your local art scene, you know toot your own horn, have some postcards, have some stickers, have some buttons to hand out and and just making friends with other artists and not having them all be perceived as competition or. You know, I mean, uh, there's always going to be a little jealousy. There's always going to be a little competition. That's what makes, you know, the creative spirit get juiced and fueled. But I mean, partnering with like-minded creatives is always going to make a a louder noise and a bigger scene than trying to, uh, you know, do a little show of your own work at a cafe or a bar somewhere and hoping a bunch of people are going to come out. You know, I mean, it might, but if you've got ten other friends and they're all inviting ten, twenty friends. And then those friends that never knew you know you and vice versa. That's how community grows and that's how collaboration wins always.
0: Yeah, that's amazing because, I mean, Jeremy kind of echoed it when I was talking to him about how he selects people in the convent that he shows. He was saying something very similar. He's like, I'm not going to show you if you're not coming out to the shows and participating in the community. And like that's community spirit is really a big part of what he's trying to put on. And it sounds like that's an important thing to you, right? Completely.
1: Completely. With like Jeremy in the convent, he's coming very much from that you know the dark arts side of things like you know last rites and copro. I mean that's a very specific niche. And like he said, yeah, if you're not if he's not seeing you at those shows, then you're not then you can't sit there and try to lie to him that you're a big fan of it because it's like well if you can't even come out once a month, why should I support you?
0: Is there any risk of an artist putting out too much in a year? Is there any downside to that?
1: Hundred percent. Um, I I mean, a a great example of this is, like, I tell people to go and look at La Luz de Jesus, which is, like, a really renowned gallery here locally that's been around for 25 years and is, you know, the first place that Ryden showed and Shore and Williams' first prominent show. I mean, they've not been as, you know, prominent, I guess, say, these last five years as they were maybe 10 to 15 years prior. But they're about to make some pretty big moves this year that's going to, I think, put them back on the map. And their new director is a friend of mine, and he's awesome. And I think it's exciting to see some rejuvenated blood there. Um, Go back and look at their show history from, like, 95 to 2005. And, like, how many artists said if you were involved in the scene then or at least have some history of the knowledge of the movement and just be like, oh, damn that just aren't here anymore, um, that just oversaturated the market. I've got a couple of artists that I always use as examples and I've learned to stop doing that because I, I mean, they're friends and I feel bad. <laughs> um, but there's a couple of folks that like right around the, like 2005 to 2010 when this movement was really starting to crack and pop off, a couple of people got pretty popular and had, a pretty, had had some successful first shows and then got, Overly hungry, I think is the best way to put it. And and then all of a sudden, did like three or four solos in, in the span of like a year. And and the, the third and fourth solos for both of them kind of tanked in terms of sales, in terms of sell through. And sadly, the gallery world is a business. And when that happens, you know, once, not a bad thing, two, three times, writings on the wall that, you know, the, the shows are going to dry up. And the shows did dry up for both people and one made a comeback of a small in a small way a couple years ago and the other one i'm not sure what he's doing it can happen i i always tell artists that the art world is like one big chess game um every move influences the next just like i was saying with like how each institutional show we do opens another door each successful show or each non successful show opens and closes doors. And it's, you've got to be really mindful of supply and demand, I guess, that old term. You know, if you've just had a big show sell out in March, don't go and do another one in May. Um, I, I see a lot of street artists doing it right now. Um, I think, uh, I don't want to name names. Um, it's just, it's it comes to a point to where like if if you're doing four or five solos a year it's just press is gonna get tired they're, they're not gonna cover them it's like oh jesus another fucking show from so and so really didn't you just do a show and, and there's been a couple people this year that have had two or three solos on concurrently on a worldwide basis and there's that notion of oh you're balling and your ego is probably feeling pretty good but if i mean go and delve into them I mean I'm sure some people listening know a handful of the artists that I'm talking about the shows aren't selling through um, you're, you're, they're just shooting themselves in the foot um, do
0: you think that it could also affect the quality of the work if they're just putting uh, out so much
1: big time big time yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a couple of artists um, yeah it just because you, um, you you play to the hits a little too too much when you're pumping them out that quick and, you know, um, you you notice that uh, growth and experimentation kind of falls off, not to mention a lot of very similarly themed works because, oh, they sold in these two shows, and they're almost like remixes in a way, especially some of the bigger ar- artists out there that are starting to have teams behind them, which is kind of new for this movement, this little bubble of the art world. Um... It's going to be interesting to see how that uh, impacts the long term for the for these folks. Um, I mean, there's something to be said for you know exposure, but overexposure is a a, a very delicate thing. And once you hit that, it's kind of hard to uh, pull back unless you really re, re, regroup and restructure. And I think some people uh, they love that cr- that ego caress and 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 they're too deep in it to to see it and the people that are around them are money people i guess you could so to speak so they they want to see that and no one's looking long term i think is the is the best way to put that um i mean i always tell people like look at the the top tier artists that you respect they do a big show every year or two maybe every three you know not not, not every other not every second or third month they (laughs) have every second or third year and then you know i'll hear people go well how the fuck am i supposed to survive in the interim and that kind of goes back to that question that you asked earlier that i think i got a little off track of but um doing you know exhibition catalogs you know a catalog of your work every five to seven years you know affordable prints, high-end prints um sticker sets button sets um enamel pins um magnets shirts hats i mean there's so much stuff right that i mean artists that i don't think could do a button set you know i'll go on their site and and they'll have like a whole array of merch and i'll talk to them and they'll be like oh, i'm fucking killing and it's just <laughs> like shit um and then i tell artists like just to start something as simple as like just start your own little etsy or your own little shop um there's a number of artists that had came to me with that and i'm like start this launch a sketch each week and maybe a print quarterly and i talked to them now years later and they're like dude they're like that shot pays for my my rent they're like thank you you know they're like there's just just something they didn't think about and then once you build that market and and if you're smart about it and you and you feel it just enough and you you don't oversaturate it it's it's crazy those those fives tens fifteens 20s and 50s add up when there's you got 100 supporters and then the patreon thing that a lot of artists still don't do i'm like do the patreon thing man it's crazy how much money some people make off that
0: patreon i'm seeing that more and more yeah
1: it, it's it's a pretty amazing thing especially artists that you know are are, are talkative that have a, a bit of a you know a bit of a personality a lot of people you know don't when you're just trapped up trapped in your room all the time, you know, talking to your dog or your cat and, and, the painting on your easel. I mean, I understand that a lot of people aren't dynamic outgoing folks, but, um, I mean, when you can turn it on a little bit and it, it really, it, it adds up.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the anniversary show that you got coming up. So first of all, congratulations, 15 years. That's like, that's a huge thing, dude. What can people expect from the show? It looks like it's going to be pretty huge. We're excited. Um, We've uh, started putting
1: it together a while ago. We got about 95% of the people in the show that we wanted to. There's a couple big names like Audrey and Esau that are just at places in their life or schedule, like Audrey's getting ready to move to uh, London. Esau just did a huge museum show for us. And so, I mean, some people just couldn't take it on. And it's a bit of a bummer that not everybody that I, I wanted could be in the show. But I mean, it's it's a pretty amazing show. We've got 71 artists in the show. Um, one, one person had to drop out due to life. Um, but, uh, I think when I started the list, it was like around 150. And I knew we couldn't do that big of a show, um, because we wanted the pieces to be on 15 by 15 inch panels, which are a little bigger than the 12 by 12s. And we just wanted the focus to be a little bit more honed down to people that we have really worked strongly with. Um, our, our, our family, as as I call it, is is vast. I mean, we probably actively work with about two hundred to two hundred fifty artists worldwide. But those are more for the LAX touring shows and you know really showing the breadth and the strength and the you know diversity of the movement. But with our personal roster, we've got about thirty or so artists that we work with a lot. Like you know we're doing a solo every year or two and things of that nature. And then about another thirty or forty to where we work with them a lot, but they're they've either got another prominent gallery where they do solos back home in Europe or where it be or they just paint and have a lifestyle to where like solos aren't really you know in their wheelhouse so to speak so we keep them as busy as we can with other with other uh, events and shows and whatnot that we do. So um, once we were able to kind of hone it down to that, we knew that we wanted to have truckkle involved which is a local, Uh, art supply company that we work with pretty heavily over the years and when we did our 10 by 10 show they had provided 10 by 10 inch panels to everybody and i hit her up and i'm like hey i'm like i know 15 by 15 inch panels isn't a normal thing but i kind of want to keep the vibe going that we did with the first one with you all what do you have in mind and she had these new floated like built-in floater panels that they were messing around with where it's one solid piece of wood but it's deeply routered to where it looks like it's a cradled wood panel in a floater frame um and i was like man these are these things are pretty amazing so we uh had it arranged to where we were able to get 80 of those from them and then we uh wood burned our logo our 10 our 15 year stamp on the back of each one to kind of like cemented this part of the show um and it just looks really badass too i gotta say um and we mailed them out to everybody back in august and september of this year and um they're just coming in now i'm getting about 10 a day right now for the last uh like four or five days, so it's like a extended Christmas. Um got a bunch of them over there right now that just came in <laughs> so uh Oh wow. But um no, we're really excited about it. Um and Elsie and I just worked on uh an installation for the show um that we spent a couple days on. Um we hit up uh Spencer Little, um the wire and wood sculpture artist that we work with, um, to help. Uh so I didn't cut off a finger in the process and then it was like, Hey, can you make me a uh, an eight foot tall 15, like a one and a five. And um, he created those on quarter inch maple with like a nice float behind them. And then LC and I went in and collected all the postcards from the last 15 years of shows, and we collaged them on the, the one and the five. So that's gonna be like the focal point of the show on like a wall that's painted gray. That's amazing. Some people know what they're there for. It's like, oh, a 15 year anniversary show. Um and we'll be doing like tons of giveaways and um, all sorts of stuff throughout the night. Not to mention, I mean, I can't imagine how many artists are going to come. So our 10-year show was in January too, which unfortunately is a pretty crappy time of year in L.A. in terms of uh, the weather we have. When we do have bad weather, it's usually in January. And for our 10-year show, it was like pouring all night. And we had a line around the block all night. And I think we were open to like about 11.30 to get everybody in because we kept popping out, thanking them for waiting and... Encouraging them that we're going to get everybody through, and so for this one, we're hoping that we have good weather. Knock on wood. Um, and if anyone's listening, know that uh, no matter how long uh, it takes, we're going to get everybody in through the doors that night. So
0: very cool. So what else do you have planned for 2020? I saw a spread in your Instagram feed with Telmo, Meal, James, Bullo. You have a couple guys already lined up, right?
1: Yeah, our whole um, we're booked through 2022 right right now. We, we teased our first six months of the year on uh, Instagram, and we'll be putting the first four up, probably tomorrow on our website. But um, we've got some big shows with uh, some European artists that we've been building slowly over the last few years, and you know getting them into powwows and group shows and some smaller shows, but tell. Me, Um, The duo from Amsterdam, we're excited to be doing, like, their first really big show. They're cranking away on some massive canvases right now. Um, James Ballou, too, another mural beast. Uh, He's born and bred, like, around the Baltimore area, but he's been over in Berlin for a number of years now, and um, we're really excited about that. Uh, Georgie Co., who used to work with Giant Robot, they're moving over, and we're doing some really big things with them in the year ahead. historically two of my favorite artists that we own a ton of fucking work from, uh, the date farmers, they broke up as a duo. Oh, three, four years ago. And Carlos Ramirez has definitely been flying the flag, the strongest of the two. And, um, has had a couple shows with new image and other galleries over the last few years. And, uh, he and I have been building a relationship over the last year. And we just had him out for designer con doing a couple of, Really huge sculptures of his of his characters, and we're excited to be doing a big show with him. Like just as a like an art lover fan nerd, um, like that's the sh- one of the shows this year that I'm like, fuck, I can't believe we're doing a show with Carlos. I'm really excited. Um, Hilda Palafox Pony, um, we're excited to be doing her first big show out here. Um, we're doing another big event with Pow Wow. This is actually their 10 year anniversary year back in Hawaii. So um, we're doing our normal show with them in February that we always do in tandem with the Mural Festival. And then in November, we go back over to Hawaii again, tough, I know, um, and do a huge, huge show there in November of this year at the Bishop Museum, which is their natural history museum. And it's boggling to Jasper and I that they're giving us the time of day, let alone (laughs) entertaining us to take over the whole museum. And that'll be a show that's up for three months, oh wow, and is uh we're we're kind of right we're deep in the midst of uh, curating that right now because we're we're fundraising with the museum and their patrons, so we've kind of asked about thirty artists to like, hey, what's your pipe dream if you, budget wasn't a question, what would you create and then okay, you, you've got a budget of about five k what could you create and um Obviously, we're not going to be able to bring all said pipe dreams to life, but it's been amazing to kind of see what's in these artists' heads, especially as more and more institutional level shows are presented to me. Like, like some of the proposals have just been like, fuck, and like you want to make it happen so, so bad, like, you're, and, and, and it's coming out of artists that you're like, well, I didn't know this was in you. Um, that's been amazing to see. So that's been really cool.
0: Yeah, do, do you think the museum shows have, have caused artists to bring their a game and go kind of oh, go above and beyond?
1: Hundred percent. Even with this fifteen years show, I mean, pieces are coming in that we're like, oh, people are flexing, you know, <laughs> like, like they're spending a little bit more time on these because I mean, I think they know that there's going to be a ton of a ton of exposure on the show, and you know, they're showing with artists that they look up to themselves, and they know that they're probably going to be seen by said artists. Sure. And um, yeah, whenever you can kind of light that candle under somebody it's amazing but yeah i mean for every museum show we've done some of the best pieces i've ever seen from the artists included that come in because yeah i mean you're getting three months exposure to a museum there's every possibility that the museum might buy it um you know so i mean and that's something else that's you know we didn't touch on i mean every time we do one of those museum level shows a few pieces make it into said museum's permanent collection and that's like wow you know, either via us buying and donating or them reaching out and purchasing directly. So um, you can't ask for more than that because that's that artist's legacy, you know, being established and a piece being saved somewhere for, you know, for history. And it's going to be safe and sound for years after they're, they've left this mortal
0: coil. That's amazing. All right, well, we're right at the end now, so I have one last question for you, and it's something that I that I ask everybody. It'll, it'll be an interesting question for you because you work with so many artists. But who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? Oh wow, um,
1: man, Spencer Little, I think, just because his story is he he could talk for three four hours and you won't get bored. <laughs> um, the f- fact that like, I mean, he didn't really even think about being an artist until later in life, and his path to it has been pretty amazing. and how, for like 10 years, he's been, you know, almost like a star down in San Diego, but I don't think any people knew about him until we really kind of linked him with the Powwow crew. And when that happened, it's, it's insane. The year he's had has been fucking amazing. I mean, that, that, that collaboration you know, and what that's done for him with us and museums and Powwow, especially um yeah I mean he loves to talk about it and the big multi-dimensional moving insane sculpture he just had at designer con I mean Jack Black posted it and got on the morning news it's just one of those things that's just like it's still steamrolling and it's just amazing because he's 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 the sweetest guy um and, and if you met him in a dark alley you'd be terrified you know it's like <laughs> he, he looks like an it uh, looks like an out of work wwe wrestler you know like it's just like he's a beast and he's like he's he's gotten to be one of my best buddies over the over the last few years it's like you know we we, we ask him to come along to miami and hawaii even if he's not taking part to just be there you know so to speak um halo pig would be another great person for you to have on your show
0: yeah he has a fascinating instagram yeah
1: he is a fascinating individual
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he's now like got now he's like fully entrenched in the legal weed world and he still travels the globe to like work with artists and assist them and document them and stuff um it's just two two good passion stories
0: yeah Well, thank you so much for coming on today, man. I'm really excited for the anniversary and for what you and ThinkSpace have for the next 15 years. No, let's hope so. (laughs) So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew. I'm really glad to have had Andrew on the show for many of the same reasons that I wanted to have Jasper on. Andrew has built his entire career around uplifting a community. A think space from its very inception was built around this idea of collaboration, bringing people in and truly treating them like family, taking confidence in this idea that if you do right by people, and help them become successful, uh, the general improvement of everyone will benefit you as well. Uh, And like we talk about, uh, more and more galleries are picking up on this and realizing that we are all a community and we're all in this together. Uh, I really appreciate Andrew's dedication to these ideas and his dedication to the new contemporary art movement in general. He's such a warrior for this movement, and it seems like every move that he makes uh, is one that's aimed at increasing the spotlight on this art movement and helping to uplift the community around it. Uh, So thanks again to Andrew for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm super grateful for your support. Feel free to shoot me an email if you have any suggestions for the show, or if there's a guest you want me to try and have on. Also, if you have any questions you'd like me to ask future guests, send those over too. I'd love to hear any feedback you might have for me. You can contact me through my website at artaffairspodcast.com. And like I said at the front of the show, you can also go there to check out any previous episodes. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook at Affairs Podcast. And last but not least, if you're on Apple Podcast, I'd be super grateful if you took a moment to rate and review the show. I can't tell you how much that actually helps. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other.